This is the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Welcome to the program. I'm David Clawton. Today we'll look at the vet shortage and that's happening in just a moment. We'd love to hear how that's affecting you. Labor's roads policy, will they back the Great Western Highway upgrade through the mountains? And while the white spot outbreak that's causing heartbreak in the commercial fishing sector is being linked back to the habits of recreational fishers. We know for a fact there are studies that show that recreational fishers are illegally using um, uncooked seafood as bait. They're not bothering to buy tweed bait like they should be doing. They're going to Woolworths and Coles and, and buying their green prawns there and using it out in the waterways, thinking that if it's okay for human consumption, it's okay for the waterways. And that's not the case because there is so much viruses and diseases that are in uncooked seafood. It is an absolute risk to all of our ecosystem. Did you know? Send us an SMS 0467 922 684. The risks of using uncooked seafood from the supermarket as bait in our waterways. 0467 922 684. And on the roads, we'll be speaking live to the Labor Shadow Minister for Transport so you can text some questions through if you like. If you've got a road issue that you'd like them to focus on, should they become the government in the next few weeks? 0467 922 684 is our SMS. A shortage of vets is putting livestock in danger and could trigger an even greater exodus of workers from the sector, according to farmers and veterinary clinics. The only vet service in the New South Wales central west town of Parks closed last year, leaving the remaining two clinics in Forbes to cover an area that's bigger than 12,000 square kilometres. It's left emergency call-outs going unanswered and a lot of farmers and vets stressed and concerned. Hamish Cole reports. Forbes cattle farmer Rawson Leach recently purchased an $18,000 bull. One morning he found the animal distressed and needing help, but in the end his calls for assistance were never answered in time. found him in a very distressed condition in our driveway early one morning. I rang my local vets and she said um, she was about 40 k's out doing, doing some work on a horse she said, I'll get there as soon as I can. Probably within half an hour, the bull was dead. It was a, yeah, a quite a rare occurrence, but, you know, it was a $18,000 bull. Um, I've never seen a big animal die so quickly. But I don't, in the final analysis, I don't think it would have made a difference when we did the uh, autopsy on the animal. But it just—it was just an evidence of, you know, she was trying her hardest to get there. Whether it would have made a great deal of difference, I don't know. But there is obviously lots of situations where they're they're at one end of their sort of their uh, locality doing a job, and they get an emergency. It's um, there's a lot of driving, and yeah, it'd be just it'd be good if there was more vets available. It is a situation that has got farmers concerned for their livestock's health. There's a huge area of livestock. If you go between Forbes, West Wyalong and Condoblin, there's a lot of livestock in that area and not many vets to service it. And then you go um, you go north, the next lot of vets is at, well, Parks is just, just closed up. So there's nothing that I know of till you get to Dubbo. So it's a, it's a real problem for livestock producers. And, yeah, I'm not sure what the solution is. You know, if you're, if you're a 
produce of sheep or cattleman or whatever in the parks district, you know that there's nothing there. You know, you've you've you immediately the decisions you make about having animals looked at that you're a bit concerned about, they don't get looked at. I'm not saying that there's poor animal husbandry, but there's that there's probably um, decisions, tough decisions made that if there was more vets available, you'd be able to get more quicker advice regarding disease management and all that sort of stuff. Paddy Paul is one of the few remaining vets servicing Forbes and the surrounding area. The shortage of workers is preventing them from assisting farmers when they need it most. It can make it very challenging to spare a vet from the clinic to send them out on, on an emergency call when we've already got a full book of appointments. And yeah, it, it gets a bit challenging to be able to send somebody out to a calving or a colic or down cow or, or something like that. And hard to book in our routine things too for our farm clients, like um, routine brucellosis testing of rams or preg testing of cattle. The closure of the Parks Clinic has had a huge impact on them. We were pretty busy before they closed down. We've become beyond busy since they have. Um, we're trying our best to, to service the parks people as they need us, and they've been great. They've been so patient, and they've been so great. But, um, yeah, we, we just feel bad when we can't get to them as quickly as we'd like. It gets tiring. And, it, you know, it's not just the vets. It's our, our support staff as well that, that are here trying to, trying to help us along. According to the president of the Australian Veterinary Association, Dr Bronwyn Orr, there are multiple reasons behind the shortage. We've also had issues with supply. It takes a really long time to train a veterinarian. On average, it takes about six to seven years. And uh, it's hugely expensive um, for, you know, for universities to offer the degree, for the veterinarians themselves. The average student debt is about sixty dollars to $70,000 these days. Um, and then we also have problems with attrition. So the industry itself, unfortunately, does face a few um, issues, which mean that uh, professionals end up leaving or dropping to part-time, and that includes things like long hours, low wages, um, and really high stress and demands from clients. Um, so a lot, a lot of factors going into it, but unfortunately what we are seeing is, is a shortage of veterinarians um, around the world, but it particularly felt in the rural and regional areas. Without government support, Dr Orr believes the industry will continue to struggle. What we've actually been calling for from the federal government is similar to what's in place for teachers and, and doctors and nurses, and that is a, a HEX forgiveness or a rural bonding program, which would see veterinary graduates um, incentivised and encouraged to go to country areas um, in return for having some of their HEX um, debt wiped. And that's a really big incentive for a profession that, you know, they're graduating with about $70,000 worth of debt, but their starting salary is only about $60,000 a year. That's Dr. Bronwyn Orr, the president of the Australian Veterinary Association, ending that report from Hamish Cole. On the roads issue, we've had a couple of texts already. Dave saying uh, Kiakatu Road between Condoblin and Uabalong West is a, a busy road, especially during harvest. It needs upgrading and especially around the Kiakatu Hall. Is that right, Kiakatu? It's always closed during the flooding after heavy rain. We have heard about that road previously. And uh, Julian, 
asking, will Labor run more trains in regional New South Wales, extend the Bathurst bullet to Orange, run trains to Lismore, extend the Broken Hill train to Adelaide? It seems like all parties are ignoring regional transport in favour of unnecessary highways and roads. Love to hear your thoughts about transport, particularly the Great Western Highway, which is a bit of a, a talking point, certainly the government um, pushing Labor on that because there's a major point of difference in their policies around that road. 0467 922 684 is our SMS and we particularly encourage people who haven't texted the program before. We've got a loyal bunch of followers um, and they often express their views every day but we've, and we're grateful for that. We would also like to hear other people, particularly if you've got an area of expertise when you're talking about an issue or we're raising an issue on the program. 0467 922 684. Save that in your phone. To white spot now in the control order to uh, restrict the movement of green prawns from the Clarence Estuary has been uh, extended for another month. The peak body for commercial fishers in the States calling for compensation from the Commonwealth for those affected by some of those biosecurity measures. And they extend all the way up the Clarence River. And it's all due to the detection of white spot on two prawn farms on Palmer's Island near Yamba. And they're also calling for a ban on the importation of uncooked prawns, something we've heard about quite a bit over the years since the first outbreak in Queensland in 2016. The white spot is considered exotic in Australia, but it's now endemic in wild prawn populations in the Moreton Bay region in southeast Queensland. It was first detected in this state last August, with a third detection at a prawn farm last weekend, forcing authorities to extend that control order. The CEO of the Professional Fishermen's Association, Tricia Beattie, met with affected fishermen in the Clarence Valley yesterday, and she told Kim Honan afterwards that this problem is really crippling the industry. Oh, it's an extreme worry. I mean, we've just come out of bad floods, high seas. This is when the fishermen should be out there um, trying to make a profit, trying to recover from years of difficulty. Um, and now they're tied up again because we've lost our markets. We're under trade restrictions in the area. Um, it's been always important, the, the green market to this area. And we just don't even know how long this is going to last. It's devastating to them. Well, the control order has been extended until the... 29th of March. Has there been any indication as to whether it will be lifted then or, you know, whether this issue could be prolonged? So DPI is uh, doing surveillance at the moment um, in the wild, trying to see what's going on. Uh, It's a really wait and see situation. Um, It's a potential that it could be extended. Uh, Obviously, we're hoping it won't be. Hopefully that it's not found out in the wild. Hopefully um, the situation will recover. But we've got no certainties at the moment. And this is, you know... Half the problem is uh, the lack of certainty for these guys to make business decisions. They've had to tie up their boats. They don't know what's going on. This time of year is actually normally really important for us. Going into uh, Easter has normally been a profitable time for our industry and it's been wiped out now. It's really difficult for them. How concerning is it for you and for industry that the DPI still don't know where white spot came from, how it reached New South Wales, that first outbreak in New South Wales last August? It makes us highly vulnerable. We still don't know the source of these problems. Um, All we know is that uh, it's potential that the white spot um, was imported into the country. Uh, Potentially someone has used it um, illegally as recreational fishing um, bait and it's gotten into the system somehow, somehow. But there's no certainty around it. It's a very unknown situation. So it's just creating so much difficulty and it's this lack of certainty uh, and the vulnerability of the entire system that puts us all at risk.
Do you believe that the imports of uncooked prawns should be banned and that should have happened uh, or stayed in place after the, the Queensland uh, outbreak? Absolutely. We, we as an industry have been calling for 20 years now to not import uh, uncooked seafood. It's too much of a risk. Now, um, they've always sp- said back to us, the Commonwealth government's always said to us that, oh, it's a low risk, not many people would do so. But our argument back was, you may consider it a low risk, which we don't necessarily agree with, but the consequences of this type of situation is enormous. And realistically, white spot is... A pussycat compared to the number of viruses and diseases that are out there on our doorsteps in Asia um, that could be potentially brought in through uncooked seafood. Now, Commonwealth government does do checks, but it's not it's not a hundred percent. It's not every single thing being checked, and we know for a fact there are studies that show that recreational fishers are illegally using um, uncooked seafood as bait. They're not bothering to buy tweed bait like they should be doing. They're going to Woolworths and Coles and, and buying their green prawns there and using it out in the waterways, thinking that if it's okay for human consumption, it's okay for the waterways. And that's not the case because there is so much viruses and diseases that are in uncooked seafood. It is an absolute risk to all of our ecosystem. White spot is nothing compared to other diseases that are out there like yellowhead which could potentially wipe out our entire platypus population so i just think that the consequences are so huge that the commonwealth government should have a long time ago taken a very strong stance to say we we won't risk um, biosecurity measures for our aquatic systems just like we won't risk biosecurity issues for our cattle industry so who should be compensating the the prawn farmers and the commercial fishermen for, for their loss. I mean, they're losing potential catches, destroying crop. So biosecurity is a Commonwealth matter. Biosecurity, uh, the laws, the trade uh, requirements sit with the Commonwealth. So it is up to the Commonwealth government to step forward on this one because they're the ones who let it through the keeper in the first place. That's Tricia Beatty, CEO of the Professional Fishermen's Association, speaking to Kim Honan in Yamba. And while white spot causes high more, uh, rates of mortality in affected stock, authorities assure, con- assure consumers that it doesn't pose a threat to human health or food safety. So keep eating prawns. We'll have more on that in just a moment. But we're joined right now by the uh, Labor spokesperson for transport, Jenny Aitchinson. Um, Labor announcing p- policies on roads today. Good afternoon, Jenny. Going. Very good, thanks. What's the announcement today, the Emergency Road Repair Fund? Yeah, so Labor's going to create a new uh, two-year Emergency Road Repair Fund, which will be a $670 million fund to ensure that the roads that people use every day, those local roads, are going to be brought up to scratch. So some of that money's already been announced in the regional pothole program. So, yep. so, so some new money as well, yeah? Yeah, so this will uh, be more than double what has already been announced. Uh, and that will really put, take the pressure off councils. Uh, we've got people telling us around the state that the state of local roads is impacting on the safety. Uh, roads are dangerous. I was at a conference yesterday. They were talking about potholes with skid marks coming out of them. Um, it's a real concern. And then it's a cost of living issue, both individually as people have rims and tyres busted and undercarriages of their cars. And at the same time, council rates are going up. We had a council in Tenerfield talking about putting their rates up 86% to try and cover the backlog, backlog of damage. I suppose with the election coming up, the major point of difference on transport between Labor and the Coalition might be this line through the Blue Mountains. And I understand Labor uh, ditching plans for that, for that road tunnel. Is that right? 
Look, we are putting that project on hold for the time being, so for um, to get the lot roads that people are working on now, the roads that people are driving on now up to a standard that they are not causing safety issues and that they are not putting an extra burden on councils. The government has been very vague about the business case for this. They, um, Infrastructure New South Wales, their own uh, you know, infrastructure agency has said that this project was at doubt. We're saying we're going to hit pause. We're going to fix the roads that we can fix. In government, we will look at that again and see um, how we can proceed with it. We know the importance of it, but just it is not the time to be putting money there. And if we look at what the government is going to be doing to actually make that happen, it is going to require, um, you know, some kind of privatisation in their modelling. That's you know, we're, we're you think there might be a toll a toll on that route. Well, it's not a toll. You know, we've got uh, essential energy is still sitting there, uh, and you know, this government we don't trust them on privatisation. Uh, we had the former Premier going to the last election saying she wouldn't do any more privatisations, that she did exactly that. And, uh, you know, Don Perrottet has been in the box seat driving a lot of those privatisations, so we have no trust that he will not continue that. That's a critical route, though, isn't it, through the mountains for agriculture particularly. Jiggled Saunders at a recent event was really pushing the Labor spokesman there, uh, McVeach, to, to commit to that line. So it, it, it's not great news for, for farmers and, and, and food producers, I suspect. But look, the reality is the government hasn't got a real plan. When they haven't got a business case that they can take to the community, when they don't do proper consultation, when you know there's no clarity about what the costing is actually going to end up being, uh, then you have to ask yourself, is this just a pie in the sky for Paul Tool? I know in his electorate there are roads like Hereford Road, which uh, you know provide alternative routes uh, over the rivers, and he has not made those commitments to local roads. This is exactly the situation that we've got where we don't have capacity in our regional communities and our rural and remote communities when we have floods, when we have um, major road incidences. And so what we need to make sure is that those roads are getting funded. Councils are struggling. The government has had one policy that they took for the last election around local um, roads, and that was that reclassification and transfer. To date, under that program, they have not reclassified or transferred one single kilometre of roads back but to state. You, you've listed some priorities for things that you would yeah. fund, but they're in yeah. Dapto, Homebush, Riverston. Like they're sort of they're sort of peri-urban. They're, they're not really going to help regional people, are they? Look, no, we've got other, um, you know, commitments that we'll be making. We're uh, involved in today. We've got um, ones up on the north coast. Uh, we've, we've got talking about a whole range of different areas as we go around. Uh, obviously, you understand when you live in regional New South Wales, you can't be everywhere at once. And we will be making more announcements on specific projects in regional areas as we go through the campaign. I'm booking those um, times in as we speak with uh, different uh, can Labor candidates out in the regions. So, you know, we are actually uh, doing that. It's not an exhaustive list that was released yesterday. It couldn't be. But what I say to you is that our regional mayors, our regional local government councillors, I met with them all. I spent one and a half days with them last week at their conferences. The minister and the deputy premier did not even mention uh, their, their signature 2019 commitment, reclassification, couldn't use the word because they knew they failed it. Why would anyone believe them on any of their roads promises now? And we've got this great Western Highway they're all up in arms. Paul Tool can't even look after the ro local roads 
in his own electorate. He's the deputy premier and he was a former regional transport and roads minister. So, you know, they have no credibility on roads at all. Jenny Hutchinson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Jenny Hutchinson, who's a member for Maitland, uh, lived in Walkerham and and Maitland, and uh, she's the shadow minister for the Labor Party on roads. And uh, those policies will be a key issue, I suspect, in the election ahead. On the country hour, it's 25 past 12. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for the world today. Pressure on the AFL to stop gambling advertisements. Several players have already taken a stand against them and now politicians from across the spectrum are urging the league to act. And with winter approaching and COVID still spreading, doctors want the public to shake off complacency and get a COVID booster. But how effective are the new vaccines? Those stories and more from right across the country and around the globe coming up on The World Today. We'll do news and weather shortly, but a new spray drift app is being launched in April that can be used to record spray drift activity and any off-target chemical exposure from inappropriate spraying. There's been a lot of that around this season. It's hoped the app can be used by landholders, community groups and citizen scientists to crack down on haphazard um, uh, playing, uh, uh, spraying of herbicide or pesticide. Professor Richard Thackway is the chair of the concerned scientists looking at herbicide drift, and he said the app can provide information and evidence that may have been hard to glean up until now. Yeah, that's that's correct. What we're trying to do is to say uh, there are different voices that are coming from the community, and these are from landholders, uh, from researchers, citizen scientists, and volunteers. So we're hearing these things, but we're not actually collating or um, assembling this information. Because we've heard from the EPA, they say often their uh, their view is they don't have enough information to prosecute. This may be one way of short-circuiting that. I'm not sure about a criminal case. Um, what we're trying to do is to say, here is the, uh, the occurrence spatially, where in the landscape, which near which towns, uh, when does it occur? And what's it associated with? Is it associated with some sort of crop or is it associated with native vegetation or water bodies, creeks, rivers, that sort of thing? And you can also have maybe scientists go out to that area and maybe do some sampling and maybe uh, see if see what evidence there is there? Yes. The aim is to, with an app like the one we're developing, is it's a bit like an early warning system, but it's also a, uh, a keeping a, a record of what people are actually observing. At the moment, we've, we've got lots of sort of whispers and gossip and um, hearsay, but once you can actually uh, document where and when and who said it, then you can have some sort of accreditation or verification go on where you get an agreed uh, professional, go out there and give it some sort of ranking out of 10, 10 being uh, absolute uh, case of poisoning by herbicide drift, zero it could be associated with some other uh, problem like uh, salinity or it might be insect attack or it might be uh, waterlogging or drought. So there's a whole range of issues it could be. You want to sort of eliminate that and say, yes, this definitely is spray drift, this definitely is chemical contamination. I mean, we have heard, have heard some people say they've been flown over by 
uh, planes dropping uh, spray on top of their house and uh, schools where they say that uh, sprays have gone on kids in the playground. But, uh, you know, how dangerous those chemicals or what sort of chemicals they are, we, we, I guess we don't know. No, we don't. Uh, what we're trying to do with this app is to uh, collect that information based on the observations uh, as people make them. So if there's a plane flying over and someone's quick enough with their smartphone, they can take a photo of it and upload the the photo along with the information of where, when and other observations associated with that flyover and maybe drift as well at the same time. As a farmer, you're very observant of what your animals are eating. You would be saying, I'm not happy with my stock eating that because they're going to go off to market. The other issue, though, is that people appear to be using herbicides to cl- sort of as a precursor to clearing the land and growing crops. Ah, yes, uh, that's that's an issue that government, I think, should take a greater role in and be more preemptive. So that if satellite imagery shows this, and you can get it within months of the application of herbicide then government should be uh, very quick off the mark and identify those areas and go and have a conversation and not only the conversation but collect samples. And the other issue too is is, uh, we've got the technology, we've got the satellite, uh, we've got the eye in the sky, it's used for, uh, you know, NRAF or water, uh, the water watchdog, it could be used for a land clearing watchdog too. Uh, Most certainly. We certainly have the technology and the resolution, which is down 10 metres, and we can definitely use an approach that says these trees are green on day one, green on day two, brown on day three. An approach that is already being used in pasture monitoring and in forest monitoring, but we, we haven't yet turned our attention to using it near to uh, intensive agriculture on a broad scale. Associate Professor Richard Thackway at the ANU Fenner School of Agriculture talking to Michael Condon, who's still on the road coming back from the north coast. It's a long drive. Adam uh, is here to talk us about, uh, tell us what's happening in the broader news. How are you, Maybe Adam? he's got good driving conditions. Yeah, oh, Ooh, there yeah. is a bit of funny weather around. A bit around. of funny weather yeah. out, out, out there at the moment, isn't there? Yeah. A yeah. um, couple of uh, election uh, announcements today. As you can imagine, we're now officially three weeks from uh, the poll. Um, so uh, the coalition government has today committed to uh, new reforms to protect and support renters across the state. That includes extending notice periods for end of fixed term leases for renters. Uh, there has been a problem uh, that's been emerging recently with uh, even with people who are on leases uh, being given no cause uh, terminations just so right. uh, uh, owners can put the rent up which would uh, get you go to bit if you're uh, a renter. I was a renter for a long time, and I can tell you I didn't like it. No, uh, <laughs> I still am, and I don't like it. <laughs> the uh, As you uh, guys have been talking about, uh, New South Wales Labor has promised to scrap the government's regional pothole program and set up its own streamlined process for repairing regional roads. Uh, it's uh, in response to the coalition government uh, announcing in 2019 that it would reclassify 15,000 kilometres of regional roads to fast-track repairs and ease the burden of local councils. Uh, Labor says it will scrub that program. Uh, 
Qantas says it's now going to hire more than 8,000 new workers over the next decade as it faces a major turnaround in demand for flights. It's uh, unveiled plans for a new engineering academy to train hundreds of aviation engineers and an expansion of the airline's flight training facilities. But That's uh, a massive number of people. That's a massive number of people, but there was a massive number of people, of course, laid off from Qantas uh, during, yeah. the, um, during the pandemic. Uh, so I think... Uh, might be replacing some of what was lost totally. uh, previously. Uh, the head of one of the major banks has backed the government's plan to wind back tax breaks for people with multi-million dollar superannuation balances. Uh, the NAB chief executive, Ros McEwen, says it's a reasonable move and saying $3 million is a lot of money to have in a super fund. We heard the New South Wales farmers put out a thing the other day saying actually Farmers use that system. It sounds like a lot of money, but mm. when you're putting, you don't have the normal kind of superannuation thing for a farmer. Like, yeah. So you've got a lot of investments put in there mm. to produce an income when you retire. Yeah. And so there are people that, you know, that actually are genuine, hardworking, you know, small businessmen, sold to the earth that will be affected by that change. Mm. Not necessarily great policy for them. Thanks, Adam. Is that it? Oh, I think that'll do for Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Michael always likes a Friday funny. Yeah, look, I, I was too busy gossiping downstairs to find one, actually. Right. So, okay. yeah, I ran out of time. That's I looked up right, and was like, Oop. We love your news. Oh, thank you. Now, we've had a few people um, text in about roads, um, and someone, Ross, says, the tunnel, please ask the police to consider building the Bells Line motorway. The tunnel is an expensive waste. So maybe he supports Labor's decision not to go with that. Uh, the Great Western Highway can never be fixed while we have 25 sets of traffic lights, endless speed changes, 40-kilometre school zones, and they're not bypassed by the tunnel. Build the forgotten Bells Motorway. Give the GWH back to the locals, says Russ. 0467 is our SMS, and there are plenty of others. Neil Fraser's at the Bureau. Good afternoon, Neil. Yeah, hello, David. What's happening with the weather? Not a great deal at the moment. There's showers around the northern rivers and then further showers in coastal parts from Sydney down to the Illawarra and northern part of the south coast. But we do expect there may be one or two thunderstorms build up this afternoon around the north, northern inland areas, northwest plains, a bit of the uh, central west up there, and also around the southwest slopes of the ranges. But it's only a, a fairly slight chance, so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see any developing there today. Tomorrow, there's still the threat of some afternoon thunderstorms uh, over the western half of the inland and also around the southern ranges. But again, they may not, there might just be one or two here and there if we're lucky. Still, we'll have some showers up and down the, the coast and eastern part of the ranges, mainly south from the Hunter, perhaps mid north coast will get some. And then on Sunday, uh, a better chance of some severe thunderstorms around the southeast. So the south coast right across to the southwest slopes and eastern Riverina. So there's a, a front coming towards that region that might make it unstable enough to give us some severe thunderstorms. But generally for most of the state on Sunday it should be pretty dry. And then on Monday, there's a lot of heat building up over the inland over the next day or two. And some of that heat looks like pushing towards the coast on Monday. So especially if you're in the Hunter and southwards, looks like we'll see maximum temperatures in the mid to high 30s right up to the coast. It'll probably keep us, the northwesterly wind ahead of the cold front will probably keep the sea breezes out for a long time. So it's only the north coast might still get sea breezes, so keep the temperatures around the high 20s, maybe low 30s. But so some heat and also the wind, uh, expecting the wind to pick up quite dramatically on Monday as well. So that'll lead to some fire weather problems and it's more than likely we'll have a fire weather warning out for 
extreme fire danger in parts of the inland areas there. Also on Monday, it's quite unstable, may not get much in the way of rainfall, but potentially could see some thunderstorms building up, it could be some dry lightning around. So we're hoping there's not too much of that because, that, uh, as you know, dry lightning starts fires. And then on Tuesday, that area moves to the northeast half or northeast quarter of the state, so potentially still some showers and thunderstorms up through there, but generally not a great deal of rainfall, if any, just dry lightning again. And some the heat will continue in the northeast on Tuesday, but some much milder temperatures pushing through the west and the south on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then from Wednesday onwards, pretty dry right through until uh, next weekend. Right. That's a comprehensive wrap. Thanks very much, Neil. No worries. Thanks, David. Neil Fraser from the Bureau of Meteorology. We know for a fact there is study. This is the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. So you're listening to the Country Hour, 0467 982 684 is our SMS. And we've had quite a few on a range of topics. Um, Gary, Jerry, Jerry Johnson at Mount Victoria up in the Blue Mountains says, the, uh, with respect to the tunnel infrastructure investment, it's all about improving efficiency within the New South Wales economy. There were similar negative complaints, he says, when the original Harbour Tunnel was built and now everyone uses it for efficiency of transport. Uh, and on the prawns issue... Graham said, uh, green uncooked prawns, which is what the industry is asking, should be banned as imports. He says, they're on cruise ships and all the Asian-based shipping that moves along our coastline. So it's just the tip of the white spot problem. You heard from the uh, fishing uh, association saying fishermen, recreational fishermen, are putting uncooked prawns they're getting from the supermarket onto their hooks and using them as bait. And that may well be how not just white spot but other diseases get into our waterways. And just uh, finally on the roads, the ALP says Gus from Bathurst don't care about regional New South Wales. The ALP government did nothing in the bush for 16 years. And the shadow minister was dribbling on about roads. Lots of dollars have been spent in the bush by the, the coalition, he says. We remember... 0467 982 is our SMS. On the Country Hour, we're uh, turning our attention to the sheep industry now and the recent declaration by the Northern Tablelands Local Land Services of the endemic nature of ovine yoni's disease has worried some sheep farmers. LLS has confirmed positive cases in Armidale, Walker, Gleninus and Gyra. Reporter Grace O'Day spoke to Armidale sheep farmer uh, Charles Belfield. He says he's frustrated he hasn't been notified by LLS after a neighbouring property was detected with the disease. The thing that concerns me most is that it, the importance of, of, of being OJD free hasn't diminished and it seems to have just gone off the radar with the powers of D or LLSs uh, because, you know, uh, we in New England were very, very lucky to, to not be in that terrible debacle of 15 years ago when down south families were destroyed that had studs and uh, they had to liquidate their flocks. And, uh, so I, I just hope that we're not on the cusp of doing the same thing. If, you know, one of the well-known, and there's a lot of very well-known fine wool uh, stud breeders in the New England, and uh, they're going to be shattered 
if neighbours uh, uh, have OJD next door, I have to be a little bit careful, but I believe that one of my neighbours already has had it, or has it, and they own country all over the place. One of our neighbours is you know, one of the biggest fine wool growers in the district. Well, I know he's free, um, and he's has a major part of our boundary, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he hasn't got a clue either. So if he finds that this other neighbour has got OJD, he's uh, going to be not too happy. Because I only heard of the OJD thing on ABC Radio oh, three mornings ago, and I, I was just shocked. I was spellbound. I said, heavens, uh, as far as I was concerned, we were still in the exclusion area. And um, we let our OJD accreditation drop because we, we disbanded having our merino stud. But that doesn't say that uh, I'm any less uh, vigilant in uh, making sure we're OJD free. So you're, you're very you're very cautious when it comes to your biosecurity on your farm? Absolutely. And I think more and more farmers are realising just how important it is because once the genie's out of the bottle, uh, it's not impossible to get back again. Are you worried that your, your sheep will get OJD? Oh, absolutely. Because um, we do neighbour this property and... Um, so who knows? And uh, we know that uh, OJD can move sideways. We offer if you have a, a higher area uh, on a neighbouring property that has OJD, uh, and the feces that wash off the hill in a, in a storm can carry it into you. Um, and I think that was one of the main uh, movers of it. Or obviously sheep could carry it as well. But um, you could have very good boundaries, but. If feces washed off your neighbours, and we, you know, we have creeks that come out of our neighbours. Um, so, yeah, look, I don't know. I will be most interested in how prevalent it is in New England. That's uh, Farmer Charles Belfield, and the LLS says they found cases, obviously, in a number of areas, Armidale, Walker, Glenners and Gyra, but they say uh, it's a very slow disease to show itself, and so there'll be a lot more cases in the next couple of years. Now, while ovine yoni's disease is notifiable, that means you have to report it if you find it, uh, since the end of the national plan in 2018, there's no requirement for the local land services or impacted producers to notify the neighbouring properties. LLS says farmers with infected stock have to comply with general biosecurity measures and can't knowingly sell infected stock. But there are no restrictions on selling stock from OJD zones. So uh, it's really up to the individual um, seller to make sure that they've notified their neighbours perhaps as a courtesy and to ensure that they fill out the necessary vendor declarations about what's going on on their property. Now, on the VETS issue we ran with at the beginning of the program, James at Condoblins sent us a message and he says, uh, regarding the story on VETS and the plight they're in, think how graziers feel when they have animal health issues and live 160 kilometres from a private vet practice. They can't legally prescribe a treatment without first seeing the livestock, that's the vet, And if that's not practical, where does that leave farmers and their animal welfare obligations? If humans are able to do a phone consult for a prescription, surely the veterinary medicine powers that be could have a system for the livestock along similar lines. Both the vets and graziers find themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. And still on the vets issue, um, 
Don from Dubbo said there were 48 vets paid by ratepayers in the LHPA system. That's the old LLS. But that was wound up to establish the new body. There should still be a similar number stationed evenly across New South Wales, including Forbes, says Don. 0467 is our SMS. Now, uh, in the last week, Michael Condon and Kim Honan have been broadcasting from the northern rivers of New South Wales. It's been an emotional week for people there as they mark a year since the catastrophic floods swept through the region, leaving in its wake communities that are destroyed and devastated and still struggling to rebuild. While the focus has largely been on Lismore, where the peak of the Wilsons River reached a record 14.4 metres above the city's entire CBD, flooding it, Um, and the surrounding homes in the basin. The agriculture sector from the Clarence to the Tweed was also severely impacted. Kim Honan has visited farms and factories and fisheries over the week and she's filed this special feature. It is no doubt one of the worst years that primary producers in the Northern Rivers have ever faced. Widespread devastation across all sectors. It's been a long 12 months harvesting what crops they could and planting new ones and rebuilding cattle herds, poultry flocks, bee colonies and fish stocks. One of the industry's hardest hit was dairy. Cows and fodder washed away, crops and pastures ruined, milk dumped, infrastructure destroyed. At Peter Graham's farm at Codrington, milk production is still down 50%. A bit different to a few others lower downstream that had cattle washed away. We were fortunate that that wasn't the case. But the stress that it's put on our herd, they don't want to milk. They don't want to come back to production. And then going back in calf ready for next year is just taking so long to get the cows back to where they used to be. And then the pastures in the paddock, well that's, that's another, another job where they just aren't responding. Macadamia and avocado growers lost crops and trees from the floods, heavy rain and prolonged wet. Beekeepers had equipment and hives wash away, millions of bees dead and their habitat wiped out. The habitat of the rivers was also severely damaged, decimating fish stocks. Damien Moran from the Clarence River Fishermen's Cooperative says the industry is still on the mend. We're recovering now but did hurt the stocks because of how big the flood was um, and how big our river system is. What went out through the mouth here, yeah, was extreme. So, you know, it hurt the ocean guys as well, the amount of water and, and different things that were flowing out that out the river and um, where they working close and that sort of stuff. So definitely affected slowly on the recover now. So what good could come from such a catastrophe? Despite flood water from the adjacent Wilsons River destroying his microgreens operation at South Gundarimba, he, his wife and eight children being rescued by boat from the roof of their flooded home, Pepe Fassos says the floods had a silver lining. It's a brand new farm. Probably my dream farm now, as opposed to what I had, uh, the expansion that we needed. We just took the risk and here we are. We've traded now for nearly five months, so we're kind of happy with that. And if another flood comes, it comes, but I can't see it being as devastating. This is a new modern design, cheaper but more effective and easier to replace. Yeah, much more thought gone into it. And whilst Willan Thompson's flooded house near Swan Bay still needs a bit of work, her flower fields are blooming and look better than they did before the floods. Our focus was on the gardens and what our experience was it's been an amazing growing year and as the gardens blossomed we blossomed again so that was we did that first and the house came second and I've had such lovely feedback we're on the main road between Woodburn and Korokai 
So as people drive past, they've watched us re-blooming and I've had lovely messages about, you know, I get vicarious joy when I drive past your, your farm seeing you recover. Farmers like Sue Ellen and Pepe spent weeks and even months living in temporary accommodation before they could move back into their flood-ravaged homes. For the Morrow family, that moment could still be months away. The damage to their home was that severe it needs to be demolished. And whilst they build the removal home they had trucked in, they're living in the pod village in Korokai. We don't know when we move out. It just depends how long it takes for us to get this house up and going. So we were allowed to stay for two years in the pod, which is great. Hopefully it's not a full two years <laughs> before the house is ready. It's been a tough year. It's been a tough 12 months. Yeah, sometimes we've thought about selling up and going. Uh, but at the end of the day, we've had to rebuild. Lyle and Catherine Morrow, whose entire corn crop was destroyed by the floods, their four horses also died in the disaster. They now have a soybean crop in the ground and are hoping for a good harvest and price this year. 2022 was a disaster for the soybean industry in the Northern Rivers. Only 5% of the 12,000 hectares in the ground from the Clarence to the Tweed were harvested. North Coast Oilseed Growers Association President Paul Fleming says it's the worst year for growers in his living memory. Luckily it's been a reasonably good season this year so far. It's probably a bit more on the dry side than anything but I think pretty much everyone that that planned to plant soybeans has planted and and got a, a pretty good looking crop going forward. We probably do with a little bit more rain now. Some of the crop was actually planted a bit later than than ideal because of the the dry weather earlier in spring. Tony Carusi at Kilgan lost everything in the floods. His soybean crop, rice, cane, all his cattle, machinery, trucks and his three houses were flooded. Our main focus has been on getting crops in the ground which has been very difficult because of the damage to uh, all of our equipment. We've got um, some nice soybean crops and the rice crop is going fairly well, although we're a little bit of tip burn because it's just been too dry. We've had um, difficulty with uh, sugarcane crops have been uh, decimated uh, by the flood, a lot of debris. We had no uh, one-year-old sets at uh, our planting material. While major agricultural assets like Sunshine Sugar's Three Mills and the Norco Ice Cream Factory suffered extensive damage, tens of millions of dollars worth, they decided to repair and rebuild on the riverbank sites. But for smaller artisan facilities, the risk of sticking around for another flood was too great. In North Lismore, a stone's throw from the Wilsons River, Jenna Piwackett produced plant-based fermented drinks. She still does, but with a flooded factory, had to pivot first moving into a commercial kitchen on a nearby pecan farm and then into a much larger space in Ballina. We did love the space and I often lamented the idea that we had to leave because I loved the community, I loved the fact that we were part of the enrichment of that area. You know, we we had a really great uh, presence in the community. We felt really nostalgic about the place and loved it and lots and lots of times shook the fist to the sky like, why does it have to flood here? We love it. At Woodland Valley Farm at Fernvale in the Tweed Valley, egg producers and pasta makers Fabian and Jackie Fabro moved their chickens and ducks in plenty of time, but their home and commercial kitchen went under. Our commercial side of things, the commercial kitchen went completely under. A lot of the equipment there went under as well. And as a consequence of that, we've moved the kitchen off the farm now and it's now in Mwillumbar on higher ground, uh, hopefully safer ground for next, the next event.
that's for sure. Let's swing back to another positive now. While the Richmond River High campus in Lismore was destroyed by floods with the students relocating to another campus, the animals have returned to the school farm on the site. Agriculture teacher Sally Ford. It's exciting when the kids come back to the farm because that's what they actually say, you know, our school isn't normal, it's not what we used to have. It's good, but it's not what we used to have, but the farm's our normal. Um, Sydney Royal's our first one um, with, yes, the little Angora goats. That's a new adventure for us. And our Dubbo sheep are about to turn up in about eight days. So that's a big, exciting thing because that's one of the shows that we love going to and competing against. Kim Honan with some of the voices from the North Coast and that special report from the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. One year from the catastrophic floods. Thanks, uh, floods. Thanks, Kim. And also Michael Condon, who travelled to the, the North Coast over this week to tell some really extraordinary stories of devastation and some recovery and some hope for the future. And you can see more about that on our website, abc.net.au slash rural. On the Country Hour, it's... Six minutes to one. This week on Landline, flooding along the Darling River. Three years ago we were in a solid drought, so we had no water in the river. <laughs> exactly opposite. But, you know, that's, that's living on the land. And the Tassie wool grower doing it her way. I kind of have given up on caring about what people think. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. This is the Country Hour and uh, still on the floods. We've had a text from someone who says, uh, what about the impacts down the Lachlan? And yet the Minister for uh, and Water New South Wales still deny what he describes as gross mismanagement of Wyangala Dam. People should remember this when they vote, says this texter. No name on this one. It's always good to put your name and where you're texting from. Um, they say, uh, why would you vote back a government who deny accountability? And they say, I'll be changing my vote for the first time. And uh, we also had texts from uh, Bernie at Binaway. He says that the Shadow Roads Minister, who we spoke to earlier, um, he says, what we need is for the roads to be fixed properly, not patched. Uh, here in the Warrumbungle Shire, they're resheating roads. They're not fixing potholes. They just run a sheet over the top of them. So in six months, the pothole reappears. Well, there are programs for building back better, Bernie, so I wonder if that will address the problem. And briefly, the wool market's recorded its biggest February in eight years as numbers are crunched on last month. I'm not talking prices, though. I'm talking about offerings. Overall, 193,385 bales were offered last month. As wool broker Dominic Shortest tells Amelia Bernasconi, the new record came as no surprise. The offerings have been absolutely amazing. Historically, this time of year, is a very low supply time, as people would know, that uh, most people shear in that, uh, you know, uh, spring uh, and into summer. But uh, this year, just a lot of wool being left out in stores, as people would know, during the floods and, and the big harvest as well with uh, lack of trucks to get it to the store. But, yeah, the offerings have been amazing, really amazing, yeah. But things seem to have held on pretty well, despite that. What were we at? Just over 48,000 bales offered. Yes, that's correct. And we've got 51,000 bales offering next week. We had the three centres selling, uh, Fremantle, Melbourne and Sydney. But, uh, yeah, it just keeps coming. And uh, it does show a really good underlying strength in the wool market at the moment. That It is. It's, one, it's handling the big offerings. Two, the market is holding very well. And a lot of the wools that are uh, not so much seasonally affected, those wools that are 
haven't got much VM in, and, and uh, their tensile strengths are good and yields are good. They're holding up particularly well. Uh, wolves that are struggling a little bit with uh, uh, tensile strength and they're yeah, carrying a bit of VM like some of the wolves we're seeing out of the West at the moment. Uh, you know, they've sort of got anywhere from 3 to 5% VM in the actual fleece lines, which is, it's giving the, the trade the opportunity to sort of pick the eyes out of the offering a bit. And yeah, and that's what tends to happen on on such big offerings. Dominic Shortis, and he mentioned VM there, which is vegetable matter caught up in the wool. Things like seeds, burrs and grass. Not such a good thing. And briefly to markets, Graham Richard is at Griffith. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers lifted to 7,600. The quality was a little bit plain with a lot of the lambs dry and carrying seed. Heavy and extra heavy weights were best supplied and presented and there were a few larger lines of trade weights which were mixed. Not all the usual buyers attended and the sale sold to a cheaper trend. Trade lambs 20 to 22 kilos, 134 to 154, 22 to 24 sold to a top of 188. The heavy lambs 24 to 26, 166 to 201, averaging 750 on a very mixed run. 26 to 30 kilo lambs were $10 cheaper, 201 to 238. The extra heavies also 9 to 10 cheaper, 222 to 279, and they range between 740 and 780 cents. Merinos with a long skin topped the hoggett market, reaching 155. Mutton numbers rose to 2,800. Light and medium weight sheep were cheaper. The light mutton, 24 to $65. Medium weight, 62 to 75. Heavy mutton were 5 to 6 stronger. Crossbred ewes, 130 to 144. And Dorpers reached 147. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks, Graham. That's almost the country hour. But just going back to that white spot issue and... The Australian Prawn Farmers Association uh, has been highly critical of the management response so far. It's repeating the call for all imported raw prawns to be cooked. And they say after the white spot incident in a hatchery in northern New South Wales last year, the New South Wales Minister for Agriculture declared the state white spot free. But Kim Hooper from the Australian Prawn Farmers Association says uh, that situation was contained and fully eradicated at the hatchery last year, but she points out it was at the farmer's expense. They also think the DPI didn't sample enough animals in the wild to make a conclusive determination on the presence or absence of white spot. She said, based on evidence in Queensland, where they've had white spots since 2016, it was the wrong time of year to survey wild crustaceans and the precautionary principle should have been applied anyway. She said, we saw in Queensland how insidious the spread of white spot can be and yet clearly no decision makers in New South Wales took any notice of the precedent and they sent an independent expert to go to New South Wales and assist the... uh, prawn farmers there to deal with the issue. So they're very unhappy about the way the issue has been managed in New South Wales. We expect there'll be more on that. We've been chasing the Federal Minister, Murray Watt, to see whether he will ban some forms of imported prawns. That's the Country Hour.